Make your way to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. We're continuing our walk through this opening section. Uh, We'll find ourselves in verses 6 through 9 this morning. Now, I haven't mentioned this, but actually, 1 Peter 3 through 12 is just one long sentence, really. It's broken up in English for us. It's just one long sentence establishing for us the glories of our salvation as he addresses this people who are suffering. And those are his original recipients, but of course that is a universal reality for all of the people of God because living as those who belong to Christ in a world that he has not yet established his kingdom, therefore is under the control of the God of this world and unrighteousness, we would expect there would be conflict, and there is conflict. We all experience conflict. We experience conflict in a variety of ways, but the kind of conflict that Scripture prepares us for is that that comes from specifically identifying with the name of Christ in a world that hates that name and everything that he stands for. Sometimes it's a subtle sort of passive-aggressive hatred. Sometimes it's a violent outburst against the people of God, and both are experienced by God's people throughout the history of the earth, or at least the history of the gospel. And so we come into this letter in the same ilk as these first recipients. Though our circumstances are different today, we don't know what they'll be like tomorrow. But we come as those who know the reality of suffering in this world, who know the reality of trials, the reality of God testing our faith, the reality of those things that our temptations towards us, towards doubt and discouragement, towards failure, towards disbelieving the promises of God, disbelieving His love. So how do you experience the trials that God brings into your life? And I'll mention this later. While there is broadly the sense of those things that God by His providence brings into our lives that aren't directly related to being called a Christian. It is those that are directly related to being called a Christian, to directly related to living out righteousness in an unrighteous world that really encompasses the heart of what Peter is addressing here. But, but think of those trials and all of the kind of things that you experience that are a challenge to your faith, a threat to your faith. How do you view them? How do you view them? Sometimes it's with frustration at the providence of God. Sometimes it's an irritation, even with the inconveniences that come about uh, in our lives through providence. Sometimes anger, sometimes depression, sometimes doubt, sometimes self-pity, sometimes an overwhelming discouragement, sometimes maybe a lack of believing that God does in fact love us and He is in fact kind and His promises do in fact apply to us individually as persons. But that shouldn't be our response. And Peter's going to point us in a totally different direction. That shouldn't be the response of those who know Christ by faith, who are in Him. The reality is, is that God points us to view our trials not as tokens of His displeasure, although He does discipline us for sin, of course, but rather as tokens and expressions of His love for us, to mold us and form us and shape us into the image of His Son, to cause us to lay hold of that in which our joy truly lies, namely the promises of salvation, the promises that come to us in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And trials have a way of sharpening that focus and increasing our faith and therefore increasing our joy. 
increasing our maturity, increasing our perseverance, and in the words of the writer of Hebrews, increasing our experience of the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And he's speaking there of the inward experience of peace that we have through our righteousness, our obedience to Christ. And so trials are really God's means of perfecting and and honing in our faith and proving our faith, the genuineness of it, mostly to ourselves, but also to a watching world. Now, before I read the passage, I'll just remind you that Peter ended this last section, actually in verse 5, with an emphasis on the faith of these believers. He said, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God's sustaining work, God's protecting work, God's guarding work, is actually the idea of that term there, is through faith. A faith that he both gives and sustains and a faith that we are to exercise. Faith is the human response to God. He's revealed himself, we respond by faith. It's the human response of obedience. It's the human response of trust. It's the human response of repentance. Faith then in the life of God's children is an active, motivating, energizing reality that lays hold of the promises and the commands of God and follows Him. As obedient children, we do the will of God as it's revealed in Scripture. It's something we fight for, as he told Timothy. You fight the good fight of faith. It's something we have to lay hold of. It's something we must, again, exercise and again, there's a, there's a kind of paradox and a duality there. And there's one sense in which Paul says in Philippians that work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, obey the Spirit's prompting and enabling power in your life. And yet it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. In other words, the very reason that you can do that and that you even want to do that as a child of God is because of His work in you. And so there's that kind of paradox. God's working in your sanctification through faith, and we're working out our faith because of his work of sanctification in us. And that's, that's how it goes. Peter's looking at it from another angle here and saying that faith is what unleashes God's power in your life, and it is, in fact, how God preserves you. It's how God keeps you to the end to experience all of his promises. Salvation is from the Lord in every part and in every facet. And so Peter now in this next section is emphasizing this faith from yet another angle, particularly the joy that comes in their suffering through their faith. The joy that comes through their suffering through their faith. It's a joy that transcends the suffering of trials And it's a joy that finally comes to experience the end of that faith, which is the fullness of salvation. And that is our hope. That is our hope. That is our confidence. Let me read our passage this morning. I'm actually going to begin in verse 3, just for context, and read to verse 9, which is where we'll stop this morning. We'll focus on verses 6 through 9. Let me read 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 9, and then we'll look at it more closely as we prepare for the table this morning. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy 
has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Let's consider first the genuine faith produces joy that transcends trials. Genuine faith is something that's demonstrated by what it does internally inside of God's children and particularly in trials. It's no, it's no great mark of faith to have joy in Christ when everything's going your way, is it? There's no great mark of the reality or the genuineness of our union with Christ by being thankful for all of the ways that God showers and overflows us with His blessings in this life. Right? That's not a very... It doesn't take a lot of spirituality to be thankful when somebody gives you a gift. It takes a lot of spirituality to love your enemies and bless those who curse you. It doesn't take a lot of spirituality to be happy and thankful when you get a raise at your job or the promotion. It takes a lot of spirituality and the reality of faith to have joy when everything is taken away. When everything doesn't go your way. When you suffer. When there's trials. That's where our faith is proven and that's what Peter is addressing here. And so he says joy is a mark of faith. That's the first part into this. Joy is a mark of faith. He says in this, in verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice... And in this is probably best understood as referring to everything else that he's just said in verses 3 through 5. So everything related to God's sovereign work of regeneration, of causing us to be born again to a living hope. Everything related to the inheritance, which is certain, which is undefiled, which will not fade away, which is protected and guaranteed and reserved for us in heaven. In light of all of these things, in light of this great mercy that God has shown, he says, in this... You rejoice. In this you rejoice. In this you are to find your joy. In these spiritual realities. It's where your complacency. It's where your joy. It's where your spiritual happiness is to be drawn from. Now, there is some question here. This this word, when he says you greatly rejoice. It could be taken as either a command or simply a statement of fact. Uh, a command or simply describing to them and encouraging them in what they are experiencing. And both would make sense. If it's a command, it would make sense that he would be calling them to turn their eyes on the greatness of these blessings and their suffering and to rejoice and to remember to trust God with, uh, with joy and with happiness in his great work of salvation in their life. However, it's probably best and most universally is understood here as a statement of what they are experiencing, though not to the fullness that he, they would as they continue to trust God. But he's saying, in this you rejoice. In this you are rejoicing. In this you are willing to suffer the loss that you've been suffering. 
because of the joy that you have of God's grace to you in Christ. It's the, the certainty or the reality of their present joy uh, in light of all that God has done. Let's just notice a few things then. Remember, this is still then building off of God's great work of regeneration. He says in verse 3, It's the Father of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again. So these are still within the environment and the reality of having been made to share in the life of Christ through faith, of participating in eternal life. So this is an inward response to suffering that can only be experienced by a regenerate heart. A heart that has been made new. A heart that is alive in Christ. A heart that is in union with Christ. A heart that has the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit within them. Now what's interesting is that this verb here that's used is actually uh, not used in secular Greek, in secular Greek writers. It's used here in the New Testament. And always when this Word, actually both the verb and the noun. But when this term is used in the New Testament, it's used to speak specifically of the response to the person, the presence, or the work of God. In the New Testament, in reference to the work of Christ. It's, it's always a, it's a response of spiritual joy to God and to His work. One says it's a deep spiritual joy, so rejoicing in God or in what He has done. So there's lots of examples of that, just to kind of give you a, a you know, big sweep of that. It's the term that was used in Luke 1.14 to speak of the joy that came as the result of this coming ministry of John the Baptist. It was the joy that filled Abraham's heart when he looked in John 8 to the coming of the Messiah, when he looked forward to his day. It was the joy in Luke 1.44 of the unborn John the Baptist in the womb of his mother when he was in the presence of Jesus who was in the womb of his mother Mary. He says he leaped for joy. He leaped for joy. Speaks of Mary's joy extolling the grace of God and allowing her this privileged position in verse 47 of Luke 1. In chapter 10, it speaks of Jesus' joy as he rejoiced in the spirit of contemplating the sovereignty and the wisdom of the Father in salvation. In Acts, it speaks of David's joy in Psalm 16, 8, of thinking of this future time of being in God's presence when his flesh will see God after death. It speaks of that kind of joy. There, Peter uses it in reference to the resurrection. It speaks of the joy that those at Pentecost had at the, when they repented at the first preaching of the gospel. It was the joy of the jailer in Acts 16 when he responded to the gospel of grace in Christ, him and his household, upon belief they had joy. It's, a, it's the joy that Christ had in Hebrews 1.9 that was directly connected to his righteousness. So he was given joy above all of his fellows. But there's a use of this word, too, that really parallels what Peter is talking about here. And you're familiar with it. It's in Matthew. Don't turn there. I'll turn there. It's in Matthew chapter 5. And at the the end of the Beatitudes where he says, Rejoice, there's our word, and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And that's really the context here. Jesus had said in that part, Blessed are you when... You've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. That's all what 1 Peter is about. Remember, Peter was here listening to this sermon, right? He was the one 
of the twelve and among the crowd that were listening. And he's reflecting the Lord's words here in his epistle as he's writing to these suffering believers. The words of Jesus who said, Blessed are you when you've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's faith, beloved. That is not a natural response to persecution and being insulted. I don't know about you, but I don't like to be insulted. I don't like to be persecuted. I don't like to be treated ill. But inasmuch as that happens for the name of Christ, the response of faith is to rejoice. To rejoice. And again, that is only the response of faith. The response of God's grace in the life of His children. And that's what Peter is calling them to here. Calling us to. He's saying, rejoice, rejoice. So the idea here then is for those who have tasted the kindness of God, who've experienced the the wonders at least in having their eyes opened to the glory of salvation, the hope that they have in Christ, Peter says, you have joy. You have joy. And you have a joy that transcends the trials that you're in. Joy that transcends the trials that you're in. Look at what he says. He says in verse 6, right after that, In this you greatly rejoice, the wonders of salvation, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Even though if you've been distressed by various trials. Again, what makes this so outstanding and so amazing is that it, it comes in the midst of suffering. He says, for a little while. For a little while. That could be taken in the sense of in a little while, meaning the trials that you're experiencing, they're only going to last a little while and then they'll go away. Or it could mean a little while as in terms of when you think about eternity and now here on earth, whatever you're experiencing by way of consequence of your faith is really only a short time when you put it next to the eternal salvation that you'll experience with Christ. And I think that's really the best way to understand it. He says something very similar at the end of his epistle, actually. He says in verse 10 of chapter 5, After you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you into his eternal kingdom, eternal, excuse me, eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Putting the little while there, really in terms of this eternal context, this mindset. Whatever you're, whatever you're going through, and you are being grieved, you are indeed suffering, but remember, this isn't the end, this isn't forever. I mean, if, you, if you're an athlete, or if you do any kind of exercise, uh, I don't know if you still do, but what drives you on is one is... If you're playing a game, it's the end of the game. It's the consequence. You, you work through the pain. You put in the effort. You work through whatever's cost to reach the end. And you know it won't last forever. If you exercise, I know some have really gotten into exercising. You know, if you exercise, why do you put yourself through the pain of being out of breath and feeling nauseous sometimes? You don't enjoy that experience so much, but you enjoy the fruit of it, right? You enjoy the health, the strength, the benefits. That's a kind of a very superficial, I guess, one way to illustrate that. But the reality is, is that what helps us to hang on through pain is when we know that there's an end, when we know that it will someday stop. And that's the idea here, right? Right now there are trials, but they're only for a little while when you think about what's coming. It's only while you're here on earth. That's not your end. This isn't going to be forever. 
It's only now, and so you can have joy uh, in the midst of them. As a matter of fact, he says, and it's necessary that you experience these trials. If necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Their suffering is according to the will of God. We'll visit this later, but let me just remind you. He says in verse 17 of chapter 3, It's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. He'll say the same thing in chapter 4. God's will that you suffer for doing what is right is what he's saying. It's a part of God's holy and perfect wisdom that you would be in these trials, even though you're experiencing them for not what you've done wrong, but for what you've done right. Not for your sin. He'll warn against that later also in 1 Peter. Don't, don't think you're spiritual by enduring the consequences of your sin. It's not spiritual. It's what you deserve. But when you suffer for righteousness sake, then you are in the line of Christ. And then you're in the line of your Savior and in this you can rejoice. It glorifies God. And what kind of trials is he talking about here? He simply says various trials. Various trials. And really this leaves over the spectrum of suffering. The, the term that's translated various has this idea. The existence in various kinds or mode. Diversified. It could be the type of trial, the kind of trial, the duration of the trial, the reason for the trial. All of these are, are different. It's a, he uses that term actually later in chapter 4 verse 10 to speak of the varied grace of God. The, the many ways that God expresses His grace in our lives. Here it refers to trials. So it's, it's any type of trial. And he's mentioned again, he's going to mention many of them in First Peter. He's those who malign you because you don't walk in the same course as you used to walk. Those who have to submit to those who are over them, even though they treat them unrighteously. Those who have husbands who are disobedient to the word and wives are still in that trial and difficulty, pursue righteousness and submissiveness to them. Those who have a government that makes life hard and difficult, you're to submit to the authorities over them. It's all kinds of things that he's going to address. Various kinds of trials. In some cases, it means being put to death. I didn't... Just for time's sake, I don't have this. I was going to read to you a letter that actually comes from uh, Pliny. He was later going to be a Roman emperor. At this time, he was a governor of the area named Bithynia, which is mentioned here. Actually, it, he's writing this letter in 112 AD. So this is about a generation, roughly 60 years uh, after Peter wrote this letter. And he's basically writing to the emperor at that time, trying to get wisdom and counsel about how he's to treat these Christians. He doesn't know what to do with them, but there's so many of them, he felt impelled to ask the emperor for some kind of advice. But he mentions in this letter that he knows those who are true Christians and those who aren't, because those who aren't, he has been told and informed, would never renounce Christ, never make a sacrifice to the gods, and never make a sacrifice to the emperor as God, which is what they were called to do if they didn't want to be persecuted. Others, when they wouldn't do that, he knew in fact that they, they were in fact true followers. But many recanted and he mentions that in his letter as well some recanted and they turned away others did not some were tortured some were put into prison there's various kinds of trials that these people were experiencing these these here these first readers weren't necessarily experiencing that there were there were different ways that they were suffering the result of identifying with Christ but it was different ways it's not unlike now in China, for example, we, we think of the persecuted church in China. I talked to some missionaries over there before and, and asked them these questions specifically, and specifically some who work in the underground church teaching and training pastors in that area. 
And what they helped me to understand was that even over in China, there are some areas where you can be and the persecution is very intense. I had an English professor at the Master's College who saw his, uh, I think it was his brother who was beaten to death before his very eyes because in China, because they had supposedly a copy of the scriptures. That's real. That's our generation. And then there's other places where there's relative freedom. They can evangelize and proselytize and have openly, they can worship Christ. It all kind of depends on where you are and however that local area. That's how it is here. That's how it was at this time. There were some broad things, persecutions that came from Rome, of course, but then they were varied in their intensity. And so he says there's various kinds of trials. Some are intense, some are not as tense. But what will happen and what you can expect is that there will be a consequence in some measure, in some form, at some level intensity for naming the name of Christ. That's the, that's the big idea here. So they weren't all necessarily the same, but they were all having various trials. Some that came and went and some that remained to the end. But what's interesting in this is this. Why are they necessary? Or what was necessary about these trials? Well, this is pretty interesting. He says, who have, in verse 6, uh, now for a little while, if necessary, been distressed by various trials. Been distressed by various trials. What was necessary about these trials was not only that they exist but that they have a certain distress. There's a, there's a paradox there, isn't there, in the Christian experience. There's a paradox that we all know who know Christ and walk with Him in this world. There's kind of these dual realities that exist at the same time within our hearts. And that's what Peter is pulling out here. There's a simultaneous experience of joy and grief. He tells them to rejoice. That's an inward response. That's emotive. It's visceral. It's something that we have inside. And then he tells them, but you're being distressed. That's real too. It's eternal, internal. That they're distressed. The word there also sometimes is translated as grief, sorrow. And he's saying you, you have both of these. They're both experienced at the same time. The joy that we have as Christians doesn't make the grief less real, but also the grief that we experience as Christians because of these trials doesn't smother and put out the joy of faith. They're both there. So in a real sense, we we have both. We have a joy in our salvation in Christ. We have a love for Christ. But we also have the real experience of the grief and the pain and the sorrow that comes from being in this world. They're both true. That's why the promise of Revelation 21 is so special, right? I'll wipe away every tear. They're real tears. There'll be no more sadness, no more death, no more sorrow. Why? Because all of those things are experienced here. There's death. There's sadness. There's sorrows, there's grief, there's fear. There's one day when those things will be done away with. But until that day when we'll finally be totally done away with, he says you can't have the foretaste of it by having joy now. By having joy now. I think probably one of the best ways to illustrate that kind of duality is what we read or John read. Wherever he is. There he is. What John read this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where he says that, you know, the Lord is going to return. Don't grieve as those who have no hope. If you lose somebody you love, it's sad. You can't get around that. You lose a parent when you lose a sibling, if you've lost a child. It's sad. There's a grief that comes with it. It's right to weep. It's right to to shed tears. It's right to miss them. It'd be odd if you didn't. 
But as a Christian, we realize, particularly for those who die in the Lord, that's not the dominant emotion that we have. It's not the overwhelming and the controlling emotion that we have. It is the hope that we have in the reality of their salvation, that they will with us, as we sang this morning, rise. And so that's here. You've been distressed, but you have hope, and this hope is something that you rejoice in, though you're feeling grievous, and it's necessary that you would be distressed. It's necessary that you'd be distressed. It certainly is not something that even our Lord himself was uh, protected from. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He endured the cross, and, and the cross to him wasn't a glib thing, of course. It says in Hebrews 12 that he despised the shame. But for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He felt a real shame. He felt the real distress. He felt the real grieves, griefs that come from being in this fallen world and seeing the sin around him. Particularly, he felt them as the sinless and holy son of God. But he, he was sustained by the joy. And that's what sustains us in these trials and the various kind of trials is the joy. It doesn't take away the grief. We don't want to minimize and be superficial. So if somebody's experiencing a trial and we just go, hey, God's sovereign. That's great. That's great. But there's also a time to come along and weep with those who weep. Put our arm around somebody and just say, I'm sorry. That's got to be tough. That's really hard. You know, I just want to, I just want to walk with you through this. And I want to, in the midst of that, try to point you to the promises that are in Christ, that are in Christ. I had a, learned that lesson once. This is kind of off, but hopefully this is helpful. Uh, it, there was a, a friend, this was going way back, and he had lost his father, and, and he was sad, and a lot of the seminarians kind of came alongside him and were like, you know, God is sovereign, brother. And he said something one time that really helped me tremendously, and he was just saying it casually, but it stuck with me. He said, I'm not struggling with that. I'm not struggling with the fact that God is sovereign. I just lost my father. And then he had another brother who had lost his father recently and he came and he just put his arm around him and just sat with him and said, I'm sorry. I knew how that feels. So there is a time for that. There is a distress. There is a recognition of the difficulty of trials. But what he's saying here is that's not the dominant. That's not the end. That's not the, the controlling emotion that we are to have. They're necessary because they have a perfecting result. He's going to mention But the greater reality, even in the midst of the grief, is the fact that we have a hope where grief will be done away. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more sorrow. And we can hold on to the joy of that day, even now, in the midst of the distressing trials. Because they're necessary. So it's necessary that we be grieved. It's necessary that we experience those things. But why are they necessary? Why are they necessary? Why does God's providence have to bring these things about? Why are they a requirement, as it were, for our sanctification? Why did they need to experience this? And this isn't unlike Job's question, right? He was righteous, living as a righteous man. Nobody was like him on the earth. And God brought tremendous suffering into his life because of his righteousness. Although he didn't know that. He was left confused, but God brought tremendous suffering financially within his family and the greater suffering even from his wife after losing his children who did remain was a continual source of suffering and temptation and then he felt it in his health 
as that was taken away from him too. And it was because of his suffering. It was because of his righteousness. It was necessary for God to do that because God was doing something that Job couldn't see. God was, God was doing something that Job was not privy to in understanding. And that's how it is so often even with these here. It's necessary. We don't always know why it's necessary in, the, in every detail. So often God's providences to us are a mystery. The Puritans said the strange providences of God. And they, that certainly is true. We feel that. But here, God actually gives us a little more insight than he gave to Job. Although we know the end of the story with Job. He tells us why these are necessary. Why are they necessary? Look what he says in verse 7. So that the proof of your faith. That proof there could also be translated genuineness. And that's really the idea of it. So that the genuineness or the proof of your faith. Being more precious than gold which is perishable. Even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. At the revelation of Jesus Christ. So why? Why is it necessary that we experience these trials? Well, there's two implicit points here that Paul makes in that verse. One, it's necessary because faith is more precious than gold. And so what God does to cause us to display and know the reality of faith is the most precious thing. And trials do that. And that's a purpose. So that your faith could be shown And be experienced as that which is more precious than anything else on earth. And number two is because in order to perfect our faith, that faith must be tested and it must be tried. That's why those two reasons. Let's just look at them very briefly. One is because faith is more precious than gold. The idea here is what's precious and valuable. Value is an odd thing, isn't it? How we determine value. What's important. Something can be valuable to one person, not valuable to another person. You can have a housing market where a house is worth a certain amount of money and then the market crashes and that same exact house, same property, same location is worth half of that. A lot of people experienced that, didn't they? Value is an interesting thing. It essentially includes this concept or has as its idea of what we find worthy of attaining. And its value and its worthiness is by what we're willing to give to attain it. What we're willing to sacrifice to attain it. That has the idea of value. That could be in time, it could be in money, it could be in all kinds of things. Here, he says that precious, a precious value is your faith. Is your faith. And it's more precious than gold. Which is the idea of it's more precious than anything on earth. Anything that you could lose on earth doesn't compare in value to your faith and the genuineness of your faith. Interestingly, this word in this exact form is used two, or this term, two other times. Matthew 13, 46, where he speaks of the man who found the treasure hidden in the field. And out of joy, he goes and he sells everything and he buys that field. Same term. Because it had value. Value, the treasure that he found there being the glory of the kingdom, the glory of Christ. In John 12, 3, it speaks of the value, the very costly perfume that Mary wiped Jesus' feet with. In her mind, the value of Christ far exceeded the cost of that perfume, which to her was nothing. It was only a means to worship Him. Those are the two other uses. Here he says the value is your faith. It's the value of your faith that has laid hold of Christ 
And so it illustrates then the overwhelming inner sense of affection and desire for Christ because it's not faith in and of itself. It's not faith as an abstract principle. It's not faith as just this sort of out there thing. It is a faith that has seen and laid hold of Christ and every blessing in him. Christ is at the center of all of this. He's the object of our faith. Faith as just a thing, our world says you have to have faith. That's meaningless. The object of our faith has everything to do with the value of that faith. And the value is Christ, ultimately. Ultimately. He is the precious value. He is the precious value. And that's what makes this faith and the genuineness of it being proven so valuable. Because these trials, these various trials then become a means of assuring our interest in Christ. That we do possess Him. That He is in fact ours. That He is in fact everything to us that He has promised to be. And so the trials have a way of demonstrating that to us. And it's of invaluable, invaluable worth then as they demonstrate the genuineness of our faith. I'll tell you, and I'm just going to mention this quickly. I'm going to have to move rather quickly here. But Romans 5, I want to mention this passage to you. Romans 5. Again, don't, don't turn there. I'm just going to mention it to you. But, but he uses some language here that is always just, to be honest, it leaves me scratching my head more often. But listen to what he says uh, in chapter 5. Just listen. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Right? That's, that's Peter's whole thrust. You have faith. You have hope. You're in Christ, you've been justified, sprinkled with His blood to obey Him, sanctified by the Spirit, elected by the Father, caused to be born again by Him, sealed by Him, protected by Him through faith for an inheritance, and we exalt. That's easier to understand. But listen to what he says right after that. And there's no secret language thing going on here. It's, it's, and if you're looking at it, the statements are like exactly parallel. We exalt in the hope of the glory of God. And now listen to this. And not only this, we also exult in our tribulations. What? Hope of the glory of God and the wonders of salvation. And with that same exaltation, again, it's a parallel phrase, we exult in our tribulations. If that doesn't make you scratch your head and say, I am so far from that reality, you are much more spiritual than most, certainly than I am. That is... That is amazing. But why then can he say that? He says, he answers it, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been shed out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Trials are means of experiencing greater hope as our character is proven, our hope is increased, as our hope is increased, our experience of the love of God by the Spirit of God within us is magnified. You see how that works? That's why you can exalt in tribulation. The same way that you can exalt in hope of the glory of Christ. They work together. They work together. So the trials don't work against our hope. They work for our hope. They help us to hope in Christ more deeply. 
They prove our character. That's the same idea of what Peter is talking about here. And this is why trials, these various trials, can be received as a means of God's good providence in our life. Do you view your trials that way? Do you think of them that way? Hey, God is perfecting my hope in this. Why did that person cut me off? Why did I get ridiculed and be made foolish in front of others because of saying something about the gospel? We've all had that happen. I have. How should we respond to that? Oh, this is a terrible day. Oh, this is so bad. Why is God not giving me just love and joy? Well, if we understand what he's saying here, that should be, it means like, God, you're perfecting me. Thank you, we should be able to say with the apostles, I was worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. You see, that's what he's pointing us to, is because God's doing something greater. And we need to view our trials in that way. There, when we suffer for righteousness' sake, our faith is being proven as genuine. And it's building our confidence in all of these promises of God. And it's drawing us nearer to Christ. And our joy is increasing. That's, that's the direction that God is working in our life. And we want to be in line with that. Same ideas in James chapter 1. So that's one reason. Number two, he says here, is because in order for faith to, to experience the fullness of that, it needs to be tested by fire because it needs to be cleaned of its impurities. We need to be rid of our unbelief. We need to be sharpened in our focus and detached from the things of this world. Your faith, he said, which is more precious than gold, even though tested by fire. And the analogy is pretty simple here. How do you purify gold? Not all gold is of the same purity. How do you purify it? Well, you purify it by fire, right? You melt it. Lots of verses I have written down here in the Old Testament where that's talked about many times. We don't have time to read them. But that's a common illustration. They understood that. If you want to purify the gold, you put it in the fire. As it melts, all the impurities are separated out. And what you have is a more pure gold and a more valuable gold. And gold at that time was the most valuable thing. The most valuable precious metal. He says, your faith is like that. And it needs to be tested by fire. It needs to be tested by fire of what he describes as these various trials. These various trials. You need to, you need to experience these distresses. You need to experience this grief so that your faith would be made to shine more pure and more holy and produce more joy. Let me give a side note here. It's a footnote I'll mention briefly. There is, an, there is an opposite way those trials can go too, isn't there? So there's an implicit warning that he gives us in the rest of Scripture. Those trials can be a means of showing the lack of genuine faith, right? So he says they went out from us in 1 John two nineteen because they were never really of us. In Matthew 13, he says some receive it with joy and then persecution comes. And then the love of this world comes. And then these inward trials come and they end up not bearing fruit. They fall away. Christ just wasn't that valuable in the end. And they show that they never really did have the faith that Paul, Peter's talking about here. They never did. And those trials can, for some, be a way of God weeding out the wheat from the tares, the faults from the true, and exposing to someone's heart not the reality of their faith, but the lack of it. Because the trial doesn't ultimately lead them nearer to Christ and obedience, it leads them away from Christ. And so that's an implicit warning here. But, Paul, but Peter is focusing on the believers. 
those for whom the trials have a purifying result. And he says, in that trial, your faith is being tested as gold is by fire. It's being purified. It's being made stronger. It's maturing. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that believers don't fail. Who's writing this letter? Peter. What do we remember about Peter? Unfortunately, what we remember about Peter primarily is his failures. We don't remember the great ways that God used him. But nonetheless, his failures are laid out for us as a reminder that, yes, real faith can fail and does fail. It does fall. But what did Peter do? He wept bitterly. And then when he saw Jesus, he jumped in the water and he swam to him. He failed again in Galatians 2. But what did he do? He writes later in his epistle, our beloved brother Paul. So thankful that he confronted me on that. He was a humble man, but he was a man with feet of clay and he failed. And all of us are going to fail. It doesn't mean that we don't fail. It means, again, that as Peter demonstrates for us, again, the mercy of God in writing to us through a human person like Peter, that it doesn't ultimately fail. It doesn't ultimately fail. So it fails, but what it does through that failure and what happened in Peter's life is just as Jesus said to him, is when you return, go strengthen your brothers because, Peter, now you're in a position to do that. You have a more matured faith, a purified faith. And that's how it works with us, is that we might fail, we might go through the trials. It doesn't mean we always fail. Sometimes we do better than others. But it means in the big picture of what God's doing towards our life, in these trials and in these sufferings, He's purifying our faith, He's showing its genuineness, and He's increasing our hope in heaven. Uh, more to say there, but let's move on to this last so we can get to the table. Uh, what is the result here? He says it's maybe found to result then, even though it's tested by fire. The idea here is then that it's shown to be genuine, shown to be real. And the result is that it may be, uh, it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is incredible. This is incredible. And even though each one has its own unique nuance, praise, honor, glory, or praise, glory, honor, it's probably better to see this as just this cumulative expression of the great wonder and glory of that day. The revelation of Jesus Christ. And our faith is going to be found to result in praise, glory, and honor. And Peter uniquely knew this coming glory, right? Peter was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw his glory. He mentions that again in Second Peter about how he saw his glory. Glory associated with his future glory, his resurrection glory, his glory that will be attendant with him when he comes. But here he says, our faith is going to result in that. And what does he mean by that? There's two ways to take that. He could be saying that it'll be praise, honor, and glory what our faith will give to God. In other words, that our faith, which was shown to be genuine and to trust his character in the midst of all of that testing will result in more praise and glory to God for His sustaining our faith, for His glory in giving our faith, for the way that it magnifies His trustworthiness. Or it could mean God's bestowing praise, glory, and honor on His children who've demonstrated the genuineness of faith to the end. It could go either way, actually. And some commentators, just because it is such a hard decision, it really could go either way, 
just say, well, he probably meant both. Although there is a leaning that it probably, the emphasis here, just again, following along with the way most would take it, but seeing both, is the emphasis here is actually on the praise, glory, and honor that God will bestow on those who've endured to the end. But in fact, they're both true. They're both biblical truths. But isn't that an astounding thought? You persevere to the end with the faith that God gave. You persevere to the end with the faith that God sustained. You persevere to the end in the promises that God both gave, made real in your life, and kept. And then, He get to the end, and He honors you for that. And He gives you a reward. And He honors you for your trust in Him. He's particularly honored when we trust Him through trials. Well, this is the kind of faith, too, that obtains as its end the salvation of our souls. And we're going to have to leave it there. I'm going to just maybe try to wrap that up and then get into the next section uh, next week. But we need to get to the table. And, and remember that what we're remembering in this table is the very thing that Peter is pointing us to here. The obtaining the end of our faith is the salvation of our souls. What this table reminds us of is that Christ who is now at the right hand of the Father is a king who's returning. That Christ who ascended to the right hand of the Father gave us his spirit who unites us to him. That in taking this table as God's people, we are demonstrating our faith in all of his promises that Peter here lays before us. That we trust him, that we will walk with him in holiness and righteousness and truth. And that we will be committed to him until the end and to one another. Let me pray. And as you prepare your heart to take these elements, uh, the men will pass them out and then we'll do that together. Our Father, we thank you for your mercy to us, your great mercy. We do ask now that we would just rejoice and delight in that mercy together as we take the bread and the juice reflective of the body and the blood of the Son and that you would stir up in us our affections and our worship, that you would encourage and strengthen our hearts through our faith and that you would be working in any here who need to deal with sin before they come to this table in an unworthy manner. If there's any unforgiveness, if there's any relationship unreconciled, if there's any sin that's being held onto and not being willing and someone is not willing to put away that sin and to do battle with their flesh, don't let the, move them to let the cup pass. And if there's any here who don't know you, their Christianity is merely a profession of words, not a reality of heart, and cause them to, to consider these truths and to let the table, the, the elements pass. But for us who have trusted you and, and have put our faith in you, then may this, again, strengthen us to live and to worship for your glory. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Thank you.